Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're going to talk about how to build trust as an authority, becoming a trusted authority. So, <laughs> yes, as a follow on from our interview last week with Charlie Green of the Trusted Advisor, we wanted to go a little bit deeper into the mathematical equation that he provided for determining trustworthiness. And Rochelle, noticed that it's the same sort of equation that would perhaps go into becoming a trusted authority, not just a trusted advisor. In, in fact, maybe trusted in general. So do you want to kind of kick us off with what you were thinking when you brought this up? I was saying before the show that I've seen this equation so many times in Charlie's materials, but when, when I see it, I always just see the letters. And somehow the letters just don't seep into my brain about this. But when we were prepping for the interview and talking with Charlie, it really struck me how important each of those components are in obviously trustworthiness, which is, is Charlie's expertise, but it's they're also really important in how we build authority. So just to remind you, so the, the equation is credibility plus reliability plus intimacy. And those are the numerators. And then the denominator is self-orientation. So how oriented you are towards what's good for you versus oriented towards others. As a person with more of a math background, I really dig it, even though, <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a soft equation. It's not like you could insert hard numbers in there. They would all be subjectively defined, but I suppose, but you know, that isn't to discount it in any way. Certainly people can rate themselves or get rated on any one of those factors and kind of play with those numbers and say, hmm, I can see why I'm not getting the results that I want or people either aren't acting on my advice or people are not closing deals after I talk to people or my ideas aren't spreading, whatever the, whatever the outcome that you're looking for might be. You might be able to kind of read up on each one of these or, or self-reflect on each one of these qualities and be like, eh. Maybe I need to work on my reliability or my self-oriented, you know, I'm too self-oriented or something like that. Yeah, or get feedback from someone who's close to you who can be a mirror on some of those things. I was struck by the idea that, you know, when you think about it as a math equation, well, what would happen if my credibility was a four and my reliability was a zero and my intimacy was a three? Like, what would what would that look like and, and what would happen... And there is no hard answer for this, obviously. But what would happen if I could improve my reliability? Might that even leverage the effect of the others more than just trying to increase the credibility or the intimacy in that example? I think it's fascinating. It could reveal that, oh, wow, all of my, let's say, marketing materials are oriented around how great I am. And, oh, guess what? That's self-oriented. And then you could look at your materials and say, so you're not judging yourself so much as say your web page, you know, your homepage or your website, look at it and be like, oh, I've got some credibility indicators here. Like I was chosen to speak at these conferences or I, I have worked with these big clients or, you know, I've got these testimonials from big clients or other credibility indicators. And you'd be like, oh, but there's nothing on here that speaks to reliability. There's definitely nothing here that speaks to intimacy, maybe those are areas that I could beef up because maybe they exist. Maybe 
once you're in an engagement, you're very reliable and you make yourself vulnerable to people and you sort of ratchet up the intimacy level so that it it can get to a trust stage that you're just not reflecting it on your website because maybe you think that makes you look weak or maybe you feel like it didn't occur to you to put reliability indicators on there. So it could just kind of reveal gaps in what you've chosen to express about the experience of working with you on your website or your other marketing materials. Well, and the other thing is that this is all subjective in the eyes of the beholder. What I love about the credibility is so for one person coming to your website, one potential client working with big clients would be, yes, that person's highly credible. Somebody else would have a startup and might look at that and say, yeah, really what I want is somebody who's worked with a lot of startups. Or the startup could also say, oh, I love that they've worked with big companies. I mean, they understand what happens when we get to scale. So yeah, it's the subjectivity of it that's so interesting and kind of goes back to what lens are you looking through? And it should be the lens of your ideal client, your sweet spot. Yeah, totally true. Because like you said, it's in the eye of the beholder. So if you haven't picked who it is who you most want to serve, who you want to help, then it's kind of like, well the credibility indicators could be, they will be different for different audiences. So that's a great example. I imagined on this episode, we'd kind of break down some things in each one of these categories that would be, be examples or representative of this sort of thing. Since we're already talking about credibility, maybe we could go a little bit deeper and brainstorm what sorts of things you could do in, let's just say on your website, your marketing materials, maybe on your email list, something like that, that would indicate, let's say to your ideal audience that, your opinion is credible, that you're qualified to even be talking about this sort of thing. The easy box to draw is what the world sees as credibility. What's your degree in or multiple degrees? What sizes and types of organizations have you worked with? What are the defining characteristics of your clients? And so what do they what do they value? So for example, if you worked with 50 of, of the top Fortune 1000 CFOs, You want to say that somewhere. So there's like the things you can draw the box around, but then there's the things, and that's why I think it's so interesting to be working at this particular point in in the world. It's, you think about the things that historically didn't convey credibility, but now do. And it's the story kinds of things. The example I always use is in the financial business where you have people who are CFPs who have graduate, undergraduate degrees. They're, they've taken another three or five years to get their CFP. They have all of this education and they're competing against financial coaches. And I'm using coaches in quotes and, and people who have maybe paid off a ton of student loan debt or a bunch of credit card debt. And then they say, Hey, I know how to do it. I can help you. And. They maybe don't have any degrees or their degrees are in philosophy. They're a self-taught person, but they still, with the right audience, they still have credibility. They may directly have credibility for sure because people are just like identify with that person. And so it becomes credible because I see that they're in the situation I was in. They got out of it. I believe they can help me. I would lump that into credibility, as you're pointing out. And there could be a general distrust of like snooty, you know, higher education right? Because you don't understand me and you're just going to tell me to stop drinking lattes every day. So yeah, I could totally see that. Yeah, that's another great example of how it's subjective depending on who you're trying to reach. There's one that as you were talking about the sort of global traditional 
indicators. I, I would say writing a book or a new, especially a New York Times bestseller or some, you know, like real big hit book is pretty common credibility indicator. Keynoting at big conferences is another credibility indicator. The sorts of things because other people have chosen you. A publisher agreed to publish your book. Ted agreed to have you come speak there. These are gated communities, so to speak, and not everybody can just do that. So it, it lends a lot of credibility that it's it basically it's saying other people trusted me. So you can believe, you can probably believe what I'm talking about. There's another thing that's, and I don't think this falls under any of the other categories, but there is, I really think this is credibility, although it, it, you tell me if you disagree. The way that you describe stories, the way that you, because I've had people tell me a bunch of times that my demeanor is what convinced them. Again, it's totally subjective. Like other people are not, other people going to be bored by me or think I'm too mean or whatever. Especially since I started doing the YouTube channel, it comes up regularly. Like the way you talk about this stuff is just, it just clicks with me somehow. Because I get really tactical, I get really specific, I use specific examples, but I deliver it in a sort of not, you know, I, like I'm talking now. It's like when you jump on the phone with me, I sound exactly like this. So yeah. there's a certain... <laughs> I can vouch for that. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever my personality is that comes through that, it connects with certain people who then will take it as a credibility indicator, even though I almost feel like it might be something else, but that's how it ends up functioning because they're like... Like it clicks. I don't know how else to put it. Like, but something about the whole delivery and the tone and the content itself, but also the way I deliver it clicks with certain people and it, and it, it's not reliability and it's not intimacy. And, and I believe that it leads to them believing that it, I know it, I know it does. They tell me like, like, I believe you because of the way you said it, which is a little bit alarming because that's like, <laughs> cause I might just be a good salesman, but it does seem to contribute there. What was striking me as you were saying that is I think of it as alignment and because you're very aligned. So if you go to your website, the way you speak there is the way you speak on the podcast is the way you speak on your videos is the way you speak in real life. That's consistency, which I think is reliability. But the credibility comes back to, again, it's subjective. I, I would be willing to bet if we polled the people who had said that, they might fall into equal camps. Some would say, no, that's what makes me believe him, i.e. credibility, because there's no artifice. It's just, boom, here you go. And somebody else might say, well, I like it because I know I can rely on him to respond this way. Yep, that's true. You know, mm -hmm. so I could sort of see it, and it, it almost doesn't matter, you know, which box it falls into. I, I think it, it is important, though, because that's how we build trust. It's like we want to know that someone is going to act consistently, that, that our expectations generally will be met. Yeah, that's a perfect segue into reliability. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think reliability boils down to pretty much one thing. Well, that's probably an overstatement, but the thing that immediately comes to my mind with reliability is that you make promises and then you keep them, even if they're small, really small. I'm pretty sure that's how Charlie put it, although I don't recall exactly, but I'm pretty sure that's what he said. And I've interviewed uh, David A. Fields, or we've interviewed him here, and I also interviewed him on Ditching Hourly, so I don't remember which episode he said this. But he described a situation when you're first meeting someone and they ask you a question, you say, 
you're like, oh, that's a great question. I need to tell you something first about that to set some context. And then I'm going to get back to that and answer the question. And then you do your context setting. And then you say, okay, I promised I was going to get back to your specific question. Now I'm going to do it now. And then you do it. Even something as small as that, setting up a promise in a first meeting conversation and then delivering on that promise is very similar to what what Charlie talked about when he said how humans, this back and forth seesaw of making themselves vulnerable, putting your hand out to be shaken. You're making yourself vulnerable in a social way because the person could be like, no, thanks, not shaking that. Or they shake (laughs) it and like, okay, now, now like this back and forth thing happened. It's a little bit different because I'm talking about making promises and then fulfilling them. It's a similar kind of ratchet where you make a small promise, you keep it. You make a small promise, you keep it. You make a little bit bigger promise, you keep it. And it goes back and forth. And eventually you become predictable. Like it could even be that what I just described is sort of like it's predictable that you'll keep your promises. It could be predictable in a different way. It could be predictable in that, you know, they might be completely terrible at keeping promises. They might be terrible at showing up someplace on time. And and it's it's you can rely on them to be late. But they might be amazing and they just they just slam dunk every time you need somebody to name something for you. I need a name for my new website. I need a name for my new book. And this person is like a genius at that. And they just you can rely on them for this particular thing. Well, the the other word I use with this is consistency. And so the the example of the person who's always late, they're consistently late. (laughs) <laughs> so, I mean, I, I had a friend like that uh, years ago, and we would just tell her wherever we were going that, that we were meeting an hour earlier than we were. And she'd still be a half an hour late, you know? We loved her. She was fabulous. So, but we just didn't wait on her for anything, or I would hate her. You know, I'd hate the sight of her. A lot of this is consistency. And I'm thinking of two different people, but they were similar I've written uh, some blog posts about this. I call them the werewolves. And one was a colleague and the other was a client. And when they were on, they were amazing. And so they pull you into their orbit because they're so smart. They just deliver just big things. But then something happens and they turn into this werewolf. And I'm sure you've met people like that. And all of a sudden, it comes out of nowhere. And I've moved away from a colleague and I fired a client in those circumstances because I don't do well with, you know, that werewolf kind of thing. Somebody else might really enjoy it and say, hey, this is fun, but you're not going to put them high on the trust equation because you're not sure what you're going to get. Whereas the person who's late, you know what you're going to get. And then you make a decision about whether you want to trust them on something other than being on time. We're not saying that it's fine to be late and whatever, but there's something, it's because I'm probably a more erratic person than you are, there's something about the word consistency that's rubbing me the wrong way. (laughs) (laughs) So like, and so I kind of, it does. Yeah. So the, one of the things like to use myself as an example of someone who I just want to come at it from a different angle. So like my, my daily list, the promise is that I'm going to send an email every day. I didn't promise that it's going to be at a particular time. And I didn't, and sometimes even it's like way after midnight. So technically I didn't do it on the day, but at the end of the year, there's 365 emails. Sometimes they're, you know, slid around or whatever, but literally nobody's ever complained about that. Cause that wasn't the promise I made anyway. 
But the thing that you can rely on me for is that I'm going to show up in your inbox roughly once a day and I'm not going to waste your time. That is never going to happen. Like you're going to get that email and it'll probably take you under a minute to read it and it'll be worth it. That's my promise. And the reason why I wanted to bring that up is because it's really, I think it's really easy to, when you think of the word reliability, for me, it can conjure up images that are actually really boring and that are kind of basic business skills. So it's like, you know, showing up on time to a meeting. I think that's pretty much, pretty much if you schedule a meeting, you're promising that you're going to be there at the time that the meeting yeah. starts. Like, so our, our listeners are adults. They yeah. do that. All those little promises matter too, but I think that you can look at it at lots of different altitudes, I guess is what I'm getting at. So it's like, what kind of promise are you making and are you keeping your promise? And they can be teeny little ones like, yep, I'll talk to you guys tomorrow at one and you actually are five minutes early and you're ready to go. You've got your agenda all set. Or, or it could be things like, we'll deliver this project on time and on budget by December 24th. Like it's a big, big, a much bigger promise. I feel like due dates are really big. And the bigger the project, the more interim due dates you have. And if you think about it from the client's perspective, if somebody misses the first one, then I'm, you know, I'm going to start getting antsy that they're not going to meet the overall deadline. So if you miss the first one, you better make the second one. If you miss the second one, I'm thinking, looking at our equation, right? We're done done here. (laughs) (laughs) You you, you get to that point where like, is it really, really going to get done? And do I need somebody else here? Or, or you act up because you're so worried about it that you start being a control freak to make sure things get done. And, you know, that's when projects go off the rails too. hundred percent. Yes. I totally agree with that. And in fact, I actually did, I actually did one of these, I dropped the ball twice, the beginning of a relationship recently. And we should talk about that in another episode because it, it actually creates an opportunity to, I mean, it's bad and I wish I hadn't done it, but it happened, you know, that, that happened. So now what dealing with dropping the ball, I think would make a really cool episode. I agree. I agree. But you know, I want to come back to your, yeah, I want to come back to your point about consistency and reliability because I'm laughing because yeah, I'm maybe the more straight laced when it comes to that of the two of us, but I don't like being put in that box either. I mean, part of the reason I love my own business is that I can say yes and no, or I can say, sure, I'd like to do that project, but I can't start until a month from now in order to deliver what, what I want to promise you I can deliver or you haven't allotted enough time, all of those things. But it's, I think the consistency and reliability is more about meeting the expectations you've set with, with your client or with anybody. And it could be media, you know, cause we're talking about building your authority. So it, a really simple example is a reporter tries to get you on a story and they're always on short deadlines. And sometimes we're talking 10 minutes and other times, you know, you have a couple of hours or even a day, but You've got to respond to those quickly. And when you do that, even if you're not the right person, you build trust with that reporter and they're more likely to call you next time. You don't answer them. And people will complain about this all the time. It's so unfair. But hey, it's their life and they're the gatekeeper. If you want to get into their publication, you need to serve them. So that reliability, it doesn't have to be boring. I agree. It sounds really boring. (laughs) When you brought up the sort of first meeting thing, it reminded me of, uh, I recently got a landscaper for our house. And I think I even mentioned this on the show previously about 
the process of me finding someone. And then when they came to the house, there was like a disconnect between the marketing that they had online and like the physical appearance of like the truck and the, the owner walked, you know, but whatever we hired them, I was very excited to get that off my plate and delegated. And we're going to be there by end of day Tuesday. Great. Very excited. Can't wait. Cannot wait. And six o'clock on Tuesday, still no, nobody there. So I emailed him. I said, I, I don't know what time you finish working for the day, but <laughs> <it's> starting <laughs> to think you're not going to show up. And as I was typing that email, he emailed me. He just like told me what was going on. It, and I was like, mm. it would put a bad taste in my mouth. And I was like, uh, he did email me before I emailed him. So I felt a little bit better. And he rescheduled for Thursday and did actually show up on Thursday. And, but, but still I was like, but if he no showed on that Thursday, I would have been like, come on now. Like the whole point of me paying somebody to do this is to de-stress my life. I don't want to have to like, like just show up and clean my yard. Like how hard is it? Exactly. When you delegate, you want to delegate. Yeah. I want to gone. I don't want to be thinking about a different thing instead of thinking about like how I should be take raking the leaves. And so he started off on the wrong foot with me. They did a great job on Thursday, though. So now I'm like, it's funny <laughs> to feel the seesaw going back and forth because I don't really care if he should. See, here's the thing. He's the one that said Tuesday by end of day. Mm-hmm. He could have said, I'll be there at some point next week. I don't care. I don't have to let him in. He could have just left it wide open. It would have been fine with me. It wasn't like I had to do something in the yard to prepare. It was, in fact, that's the reason I needed him because I don't <laughs> yeah. do anything in the yard. <laughs> so he made a promise basically. And he kind of like updated me the very last second, like right at the deadline, which is kind of lame. If he had emailed me in the morning and said, there's no way we're going to make it today. I just want to give you a heads up. We can come on Thursday. Is that going to be okay? Then I, that would have, that would have been night and day. That would have been like totally cool. I, I have to move appointments. That happens. But leaving it right up to the deadline and then, yeah, yeah. but anyway, it, so it's, it's funny. That, it's that optimism. We all have that on some level, like, yeah, I can get to I that I can today. fit it in, yeah. I can do that. And then you get to the end of the day and you're like, oh, crap. And the worst part about that is not only does the client or customer feel bad, but you do too. Because now you've just failed yourself instead of just taking charge of it and making a, you know, an executive decision first thing in the morning. Yep. Yeah, I still do it sometimes with small things. I try to I try to be really careful when I promise something. So like knowing that I'm going to feel that way if I break even a, you know, what we, you would call a tiny promise, let's say like, oh, I said I'd be there by one and it was 105 or, you know, if it's like a dinner thing or meet my brothers or something and it doesn't really matter if I'm exactly there at 9 p.m. I'm like, yeah, I'll be, but I actually say I'll be there around nine. I overbook myself. I try to fit in too many things, like you said, optimism. So I'm careful about what I actually promise. And I, that makes me feel better. I don't know, it probably drives everyone else crazy, but. Um, well, I'm, I'm kind of laughing because my husband's a producer. And what producers do is they make sure the trains run on time, basically. And so when somebody invites us to a party, if it says eight o'clock, we are there, I kid you not, at eight o'clock. And we have surprised people. And I'm like, honey. When they say 8 o'clock, they don't really mean 8 o'clock. They mean kind of around 8 o'clock. He goes, then why didn't they say that? It says 8 o'clock. We're going to be there. Yeah. And it's it's hysterical. You can set your watch by him. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually, I mean, I actually adore that about him. It cracks me up sometimes. But Eric is the exact same way. We'd be going to my parents' house, who I know are like you said. You know, they're like, eh, we'll, yeah, we'll start around 6.30. And then in her mind, we have to be there by 6.30. Mm-hmm. And we are there at 6.30. And they're still getting out of the shower. And it's like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's exactly. That's hilarious. Yeah. 
but it's great. I mean, but you know, in terms of reliability, I know what I can, ca- I mean, I can count on her for stuff that I'm terrible at. So mm-hmm. it makes us a good combination in that regard. Oh yeah. It's, it's the only way we get, you know, we get everybody out the door in time and get where we're supposed to be. It was funny when we were dating, I said, how do you always like ring my doorbell at exactly the right time? He's like, I'm not going to give away my secrets. Cause you know, we lived in Chicago, big city and he was driving. So we had to deal with traffic. And then I finally figured it out. He would leave early and he would go park down the street. He would find a parking place. So he might be there 10 minutes early, 15 minutes early, you know, if traffic was light and he would just sit there and that at however many minutes he needed to walk to the door, that's when he'd get out of his car and he'd ring the doorbell at exactly the appointed time. <laughs> and for any women listening, I mean, that's what you like. You like your date to be on time. It feels good, right? It's It builds trust. Sure. Like when I have high stakes meetings that especially that could involve traffic, that's exactly what I do. Because I know I'm, I know I'm like, I have a tendency to try and squeeze too many things into a day. And... You know, even if they're not work stuff, I'd be like, oh, I'm going to do my stretches. I got time to do my stretches, you know. And but if I have like, especially like an initial client meeting or a kickoff meeting, and it's in person and it's in Boston, and you know, there's just a million variables between here and there. Could, it could take three hours. It could take 45 minutes. There's no talent. I mean, there have been times when I've been given like I had a speaking gig at 10 in the morning in the Boston area. I'll go up the night before and stay in a hotel like across the street. Even though I technically I should be able to drive there in two hours, there's just no telling. So rather than risk it, I'll just spend the extra 400 bucks and stay overnight so I can just like toddle across the street. Here I am. That's what you do because you're a professional. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. Maybe we should talk about intimacy a little bit. Yes. I think this is interesting because when you start out consulting, at least when I started out consulting, intimacy sort of felt like a bad thing. Like you're supposed to be this expert and you're supposed to know everything, even if, you know, you're 25 years old and it's, you know, your first job, you feel like you're supposed to know all those things. And so that getting comfortable with not knowing things and showing that vulnerability, I I think doesn't always come naturally in the beginning. I think there's also a way to make yourself vulnerable on things that aren't your expertise that still have the same effect. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but this sort of, uh, the sort of Columbo effect where, you know, nobody listening probably knows who that is, but, but sort of going up and being vulnerable in maybe in a social way, like the example I just gave, you know, going up to Boston to give an internal talk at like a user group meeting or something for a client you're going to meet with people before that. You don't have, I, I just don't feel the need to be like Superman all the way around. I'm going to go up and they hired me to talk about something that I spend all my time thinking about. I'm not, that's not going to be a problem. I'm going to be the expert. I'm going to be able to answer questions on the fly. Like all that stuff's going to be fine. I don't feel the need to also be like the big dog at the buffet table on the, you know, like I could be like, Oh, I wish I could do that. Or like, Oh, wouldn't it be great if, uh, and talking about things where from a social standpoint, you're at, at a lower level than someone else, or I don't know. I feel like I'm talking about it, almost overstating it because it's a subtle thing. But the Colombo thing is, is kind of like, ah, can you help me understand? I just don't understand. Like, how do you do that? And I don't feel like I need to be an expert at everything, I guess is what I'm saying. You can make yourself a lot more human by just being yourself at 
you know, whatever the topic of conversation is or whatever, or, you know, I pop my soda and it sprays all over me. <laughs> it's like, you know, like that to me, that doesn't impinge on my, my expertise at the thing I'm there for. Like, I do want to be an expert at that. I'm not going to know everything probably. And I could get stumped by a question in which case I'd say, I don't know. I'll get back to you. That's a great question. I see this as a holistic thing that in a service business, you're, there's a lot of collaboration with your clients. In my case, I don't know if it's just me, but I've been in, uh, I've ended up in lots of social situations with clients that, you know, go to a client visit, they take you out to dinner that night, there's a whole social thing. Uh, there's, you know, you're driving in cars together, they're taking you someplace and there are all sorts of, I don't want to say opportunities for intimacy, yeah, but, that's actually but there what are. That's what they are. <laughs> yeah, there yeah. are. Well, and maybe part of this is, you know, when I was thinking about the social aspect of it, is that one way to, to build intimacy is, is to ask questions about them and to listen to the answer. So like in the example you used, maybe somebody said, you know, like you're having coffee before the thing and somebody happens to mention that, that they're going to China or they just got back from China. Oh, do you speak Chinese? How, you know, how did you deal with the language difference? And then they tell you, and maybe they studied some Chinese. And so you ask them a couple of questions and they're thrilled right? They're thrilled because they get to tell you about their thing. You don't have to be an expert at it. That's why you're asking questions. It's arguably that will also build the denominator of this equation, the self-orientation. Or I shouldn't say build it. I guess it would make it smaller. But yeah, yeah, I think it's really important. I just want to do like a quick, a quick shout out to a book that I'm reading that is really my uh, just, just mind altering book called Impro by Keith Johnstone. It's a book for people who do like improvisational theater. So it's really random from a business standpoint. But I heard Seth Godin mention it in an interview. And I'm like, what? What? I'm like, it sounds like an improv book. And I read it. And I'm like, it is an improv book. Like, why, why did he bring that up? So then I was like super intrigued. And I bought it. And I'm telling you, it is mind altering. And the reason I'm talking about it is one particular thing. It's the whole book is amazing, but there's a particular thing he talks about in one chapter about status roles between two actors on a stage and like how to get, you know, these two people are trying to improvise this particular scene or a situation and they're trying to work their way through it and it'll be wooden and dead and nobody can figure out why, like, like, and they're giving you weird instructions to do it. And he said, the problem is that they're ignoring the status roles. They, and you're probably like, what are you talking about status roles? It's this seesawing thing where people in conversation through body language, the way they're facing, the, how, often, how often they glance at the other person. There's a million things in, and it encompasses every TED talk you've ever seen about body language and uh, how to have a good conversation, how to be a good listener, all of it. The thing that underlies all of it is this status roles seesaw thing that is like impossible to unsee once you read about it. It's so cool. I think what we're talking about is like little facets of that. Let's yeah. put a link on the show notes. That sounds yeah. fascinating. I will. It's a short book. It's absolutely worth every minute it takes you to read it. The but anyway, the the um, the vulnerability aspect is when, in John Stone's terms, you're purposely making yourself low status so the other person can be high status. The seesaw will go back and forth from paragraph to paragraph, like, like, as you're talking, the way you stand, you decide to, you decide to check your watch while the other person's talking, stuff like that. From the standpoint of someone who's trying to direct an improvised, a 30 minute improvised play, 
it makes a lot of sense to think about this stuff in a really deep way. It's not a manipulative way. He's trying to put on a good show. So it's, it's a very safe way to talk about something that we all do all the time. And it's like, you, you just don't even notice it. It's just automatic. And refusing to take the low status role in any aspect of the interaction is very off-putting. And in fact, probably segues us right into self-orientation. Oh, yeah. I'm just thinking people like that are the people you wind up like at a cocktail party next to them. And you're like, oh, my God, how can I get out of here? I have to I have to. Oh, I I need to go get a drink. Excuse me. Lovely speaking with you. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, man. The glaring example of self-orientation that is easy to see in yourself and it's easy to see in others is when you go to somebody's website and all they talk about is themselves like it's a resume. You just can count the number of times they say I or we on a homepage or my, all of this sort of personal possessive. And it's like, uh, I, me, we, our amazing process I've worked with, or we've worked with, and we did all this and we did that. And, you know, and we wrote this. It's just like, oh, it's exhausting. You know what people love? They love themselves. Your clients love talking about themselves. So they want to come to your site and they want to hear about them. They want to come to the site and somehow, wow, this is talking about me. Yes, and my needs. Right. So then you click. Yeah. And, and usually when I talk about this, I use terms I first heard from Kai Davis, who's just the most amazing, empathetic. Part. Like when it comes to empathy in, in client communications, I've never met anybody that could touch this guy. He's amazing. I think he read it somewhere else that I don't know where. But me-focused language and you-focused language. And, you know, it's exactly what I said. Like if, if you just talk about yourself on your whole website then you don't give, you're not, it's not a welcoming feeling for someone to come in and and be like, I know that I'm in the right place, that sort of thing. But you focused language is all about, Hey, uh, have you got this kind of a problem? Let me guess. Does the, do these things sound familiar? And you're talking about pains from their life, you know, life that to them feels like that makes them feel understood. It makes them feel like you can read their mind. It makes them feel like you get them. And to me, that's, I mean, that's a big trust builder. That's, you know, not having that, you know, it's, it's the denominator for a reason. Like if you have really high self-orientation, which isn't necessarily selfishness, it's just, it's just self-orientation. It's exactly, you know, you're just very egocentric, not in like a, you know, yeah. I mean, you're just talking about yourself all the time and, or what's in it for you. I was thinking maybe one way to kind of look at your own website in context. I I just did this for a client who has a marketing agency and they gave me a list of maybe 15 firms that they said were, you know, sort of roughly their competition. It was funny after about the fourth one, I mean, they just all look the same and they were all saying, we do this. And they listed these, what I would think are technical terms for marketing. And so you could argue, well, their clients are the heads of marketing, but in some cases, their clients are the heads of businesses who don't speak marketing geek. It was fascinating to me. They were so interchangeable and not one of them had any real content. It was, let me show you our work. You know, it's highly visual. So of course, you know, you want to see that. There were some little stories on, not all of them though. Some of them had little stories, but even that, I, I would argue that's really more of a of a case study. You know, it's not as valuable unless you set it up in in a certain way versus showcasing it as a marketing piece. I think it's easier to see in somebody else's website than our own. Oh yeah. I mean, Philip Morgan, another friend of mine 
he has this exercise in his uh, specialization incubator where he has people pick pick an industry that's not, not one that they're familiar with. So this this really puts you in your buyer's shoes. Pick an industry that you're uh, not familiar with. Let's say SEO. I'm not really. I know what SEO is, but I'm not really familiar with. With I really don't know that much about it. Uh, so I go, and then he would be like, "Okay, go Google. You know, find like ten websites, and then go through them and compare them to each other. And exactly like you said, within minutes, you're like, I can't tell any of these apart. They're just like, they're all basically the same, unless there is one that talks about me. In which case, I'm immediately going to be like, whoa. That one's going to stand out, but everybody does it. It's like this, it's almost like a holdover from a brochure concept or even a, even a resume concept where it's like, you're supposed to list your skills. Like that's what you're supposed to do on a resume. Like that's here's, here are my capabilities. Please hire me. Technology process people. And if you're a soloist, you might not talk about the people, you might talk about yourself, but that's what everybody in these in professional services does. Technology, processes, people. Yeah, we've got the best technology, we've got the best processes, we've got the best people. Oh, really? Really? Is that credible? Shocker. <laughs> I always argue that those things are important to talk about, but most people, most clients don't care about the process. They care about the outcome. They care about the outcome. All they want to know about your process is How's it going to impact them? What's it going to feel like to them to go through it? And then what's going to be the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow? Yep. Yeah. And, and you know, speaking of SEO, I, if I was going to hire someone, I'd also want to know that they weren't. Yes, I want these results, but I also want to know that you're going to, not going to do something that I would be ashamed of that's being done on my behalf. It's not totally unimportant to have the process, you know, and kind of know, and like you said, you want to know what the experience of working with them will be like for you. So like I, if I'm going to work with an SEO person or a landscaper, I do kind of want to know how it's going to impact me and how it's going to reflect on me. I don't want them to like take all the leaves and throw them in my neighbor's yard, for example. So that wouldn't be good. But in general, that stuff is going to be Assuming that it's it's a pretty low bar to clear if you're like, I just want to make sure that this process isn't going to be negative for me in some way. I don't really care what you do as long as it's not negative to me. And other than that, paint me the picture. Like, what is my desired future state going to look like when we get there? And like, how awesome is it going to be? It's very powerful when you see it. And yet I've lots of it's for some reason it's not a natural approach for people when they sit down in front of a, a WordPress site configurator and they're like, okay, what should I put in here? Um, I know I'll talk about me. Yeah. So it's what, you know, yeah. And, um, yeah, it's also when you hear, it always drives me crazy when you have a soloist and, and you have a name on the company, right? But everything is we. <laughs> but we know, you know, it's just Rochelle. Um, yeah, it's the we, the we bugs me too. I feel like the we undermines trust. We is fine if there's more than one. Otherwise, it should, it should be I. And in fact, I always argue it's, it's harder to say crazy superlatives when you have to say I, because most of us don't naturally go, well, I <laughs> am fabulous and I am just the right person for you. You know, we tend to more re rely more when we use I on, on facts and stories versus yep. assertions. Yeah, that's a great idea. I, I read one, a, another idea I thought was really great the other day about uh, when you're, when you're writing these sorts of things, Imagine that you're saying them to a room, like a small room of people. 
and it'll change the, it'll change the tone in a positive way because it, like you said earlier, like my website is nothing to look at, but it's very, it's as you focused as I could possibly make it. You know, I'm sure it's room for improvement, but it's very focused on each individual product is for a very specific person. And that's all I, you know, that's not all I talk about. I do give some indication of what process is going to happen. What's going to, what the experience is going to be like for you, dear reader, when you buy this or if you buy this, because they do want to get a sense of that. Like maybe they don't have 20 hours a week to work with me on coaching, or maybe they don't have every other week. They don't have an hour on Thursday afternoon to be in group coaching. So they need to know some details, that sort of thing. But it's, it's just on a given page of mine, I try to keep that to like less than a quarter of the information and the rest of it is all credibility indicators and basically me reciting the situation they're currently in and the one that they'd rather be in. That's like the bulk of it. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's why it's a really good idea on website pages. If you're writing your own is to read them out loud. It's so funny when you read something out loud, even if you don't have anybody listening to you, you hear it differently. I think most websites should be able to be read aloud and not sound dull and not sound, you know, too stuffy. They should sound like you. That's where, you know, I keep saying alignment. We were talking about that earlier. You do that, Jonathan. You're aligned in all these different pieces and people see that. Going back to the trust equation, that builds trust. It's reliability in a non-boring way. It's intimacy, it's credibility, and it's low self-orientation. So, you know, you put all those together and it builds trust. And I think when it comes to authority, the important thing about this is that it builds trust in our authority, not just in us as people, but in the advice we give. That's a great way to bring it back around because you could just not believe the premise. Like you might say, oh, he's a trustworthy guy. He believes what he's saying, but I don't believe in it. I just don't believe that hourly billing is nuts for whatever reason. It is kind of an independent repository of trust, I guess, or an independent entity to be trusted. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's the person versus the authority. Right, the idea almost. It's it's like Yeah, it's well the, yeah, I don't mean the authority like the person, but the the I feel like by the authority vested in me by the state <laughs> of California, you know, it's it's that inner authority. I have to come up with a word for that. This is why this so resonated when when Charlie Green was talking about this. It's somehow for me seeing the equation with you know C plus R plus I divided by S wasn't hitting me. But when I when I think about credibility and reliability and intimacy and self orientation, those all feel very tangible. We've spent, what, maybe 45 minutes talking about this. We probably could spend another 45 coming up with more examples. I mean, it's that, it's a really interesting model to apply to your own website, listeners, to your own marketing materials, to your own authority building. See how it works for you. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's like, uh, it's like four levers that you can pull, knobs you can turn, to like, and they're straightforward enough that you could imagine doing it either on your own if you're a pretty self-aware person or just have somebody review your stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Love it. Cool. Well, I can, I can hear the construction crew downstairs is back from lunch, so we should probably <laughs> stick a fork in it at this point. All right. Well, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>